This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. In this episode, I got to chat with Sean Burke, COO of ProMetric, to talk about revenue leakage. You'll learn seven common areas where Sean sees companies leaking revenue, metrics that can help detect when it's happening to you, and some ideas on how you can actually fix these revenue leaks. I hope you enjoy the episode. Sean, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. We've had it on the books for a while. You were gracious with me when I uh, came down with strep to move the interview. So I'm excited to finally get to chat with you. Thank you very much for coming on Metrics and Chill. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So the way we always kick off the show, can you give listeners the 30-second pitch of ProMetric and kind of what the company does, what pains you solve, who it's a good fit for? Sure. So ProMetric is really an assessment company for people that are in um, highly intellectual fields. So if you want to become a doctor, you want to become an attorney, um, you're a CPA, you would either come into one of our centers and be assessed, or you would remotely log into like a Zoom meeting and we would assess you there. So really, the problem that we solve is that that space in between where you're at today and where you want to be with your career enabling you to become certified or um, kind of blessed by a governing body to say that you truly are competent in this area around the test itself. So we do deliver roughly 7 million tests across the globe. Uh, Every year we have 14,000 centers. So um, at any one given day, we're giving tests in in China all the way to the West coast of the U S. So it's very exciting. Wow. That's incredible. Um, okay, awesome. So for the listeners, uh, Sean and I, you know, have, have been able to kind of chat about this topic beforehand a little bit, but today we're going to be covering uh, driving predictable performance, specifically through leakage protection, a framework that you call leakage protection. And basically that there are points or areas, it sounds like you've identified where revenue leakage can occur um, and inefficiencies can occur. So we're going to talk about those. So I guess, you know, let's, let's kick it off as generally as possible. What is leakage protection? You know, what is it and why is it necessary? Yeah, for me, when I think about leakage is um, it's almost uh, the areas of your, your revenue generation where you're not completely optimized. And that can be anywhere from the initial proposal and what you sell all the way through billing the um, billing the client once they're up and running. So, you know, right now I think there's a big movement from you know you know growth at any cost versus running really efficient revenue generating teams. And this would fall squarely into running a very efficient you know cover all of your bases, make sure that you capture every single ounce of revenue that you can before a client comes on board all the way through the life cycle of a client being with you for many years. Okay. So I'm not sure if this is the right, the right question. So feel free to correct me if I'm not approaching it the right way. But if a company is listening and saying, okay, yes, sounds amazing. Uh, we, we fall in that bucket of, we want a tight revenue operation. We're not doing growth at all costs. What does that entail? How do you roll that out across your organization? Well, specifically for leakage, it's much more of a process on how you manage the not only the sale, but then also the ongoing relationship to your business. So it it really is about uncovering. um, So like, let me give you an example. I think if we go deep in one area, we'll give you an example. So many, many CROs and, and, and revenue leaders that I know 
don't effectively capture what the white space is in an account. So for example, say you have a million dollar account there, you're billing them every year at a million dollars, but there's another $2 million of business out there that you could sell to them. Many companies don't even know that that $2 million exists or, or be able to quantify it. So for them, they need to be able to do that to then deploy their resources effectively across their accounts. Because you may have another $1 million account with $0 of white space in it, and you're putting the same resources against it. So, so you know, leakage can come, you know, in, in all areas of the business, even how you scope out your, your proposals to um, how you put your headcount on your team, how you manage your headcount, how you staff it. Um, into compensation as well. So there's, there, it's rare to find an area within an organization that's you know kind of sales and revenue focused that there aren't places for leakage to occur. And many leaders don't have the touch points within either their process or the way they do business to find root out and uh, even measure it. So for example, a lot of times board meetings there is no board slide that talks about areas that where we found leakage, mm. how much that leakage is, and then what are we doing about it? So I think for most companies, if they sat down with a blank sheet of paper and said, where could we have leakage in our business, have their revenue ops team or whoever manages the numbers around their business go in and do the hard work, they would be shocked at how much revenue they're leaving on the table. So it sounds like, uh, this is how my brain's thinking about it. It sounds like there's almost hypothetically, there's a perfectly optimized way to run the company. It's people are like staffed at the right salaries. You're charging the right amount for deals. You've got the right strategy to make sure that you're doing all the upsells possible to get the most amount of money possible out of a client. And this like avoiding or stopping revenue leakage is basically like addressing all these different areas where that could be occurring in an ever, like, I'm guessing you're never probably done, but you're always trying to attempt to stop these in order to increase like gross profit at the end of the year. Yeah. I, so I, on a spreadsheet, there would be a perfect world. That's right. So on the spreadsheet, I could, uh, I could wow you with data and show you what a completely optimized team would be. But in reality, there's, you know, the science of sales and, and revenue generation, and then there's the art. The art is much more difficult to, to optimize. It's nuances of conversations that you have, how you train your team, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I do think in most cases, you can, you can put together the numbers that would show you what if you were fully optimized, you could do. And then that could give you a kind of a true north for what you would align your team to go get. And likely what you would do is kind of go from top to bottom, which, which one of these things gives us the highest return on investment. And then you'd go down through them. So I, I think it's a kind of a process that you would go through of find this, finding the lowest hanging fruit. So you look at, you know, what, what is the effort to get it? And how much does it, how much is the total potential of it? And then once you go through the entire list, then likely you're going back through again and, and trying to find more because as you, as you add new clients, as you go through another budgeting year, 
um, it, you can, you'll find more things and you'll learn from that process and your list will even get longer. So I, I think this is something that for most revenue leaders, it's not a point in time. It is a point across all times in which they would be looking for, to do this. And I think for CEOs and leaders who are evaluating their revenue uh, approach, this is one of those things where uh, CROs or, or leaders of a revenue team can really create separation from themselves and their competition by showing things that normally don't get asked. I mean, normally conversations with executives around forecasting and, and pipeline and bookings numbers, this is another thing you can bring into the conversation that will make you different than, than any other you know, revenue leader that's out there and show it's just enough you know additional levers you can pull to hit your numbers and to achieve your goals yeah it's interesting i'm thinking as you're talking now i'm not in RevOps. i'm i'm in marketing but i don't know if sure. i've ever seen one post on linkedin addressing this everything i've seen i've seen like sales pipeline velocity i've seen uh, you know just marketers talking about driving more pipeline i've seen all those things but yeah never anything around revenue leakage um I want to go back to something you said. So you talked about, you know, hey, if a, if a RevOps or whoever runs the numbers at your company. So we have a lot of B2B leaders listening. Um, so if a B2B leader is listening and they say whether they've got a RevOps pro or, you know, the, the COO like runs the numbers or whoever it is, wants to start doing this, you mentioned there's areas. I think you said seven areas that they can kind of analyze for this if they were to kind of sit down with a pen and notebook and figure out you know, rough numbers of, of what they think they could improve or what they could gain by stopping leakage. Can you walk through some of those core areas just for people that like, okay, like, where should I start? You know, like, what are the areas that I sure. should focus my attention on? Yeah. And by the way, within these seven areas, there's probably sub areas that, that are pieces of the total um, number that you would produce. So let's, let's start it kind of chronologically at the beginning. So the first place where you can leak revenue is in the deal itself. So in a lot of B2B sales, the way that you present your solution or the way that you sell can automatically, right out of the gate, change the value of that deal. So, you know, I, I'm in B2B sales. I've, I've been in B2B sales most all of my life. So we always talk about there's two approaches you could go in on an opportunity. One is a build strategy where you go in and you sell something, and then you build up the account over time. Another one is what we call a bus strategy, where you try to sell the entire suite, almost the entire white space that you have to an account and try to get all of the, like optimize the revenue from, from day one. And so just by making that decision, Mm. on if you're going to go in a build strategy or a bus strategy or allowing the, the client to dictate which strategy you approach, massive changes to your revenue can occur. So it could go from a $100,000 one-year deal to millions of dollars over three or four years just in the approach to the market right there. And so these numbers would come out on your average deal sizes, um, when you're sitting down and doing deal reviews, um, the best sales reps that I've ever seen, and I'm thinking like enterprise sales reps who have larger quotas, you know, above a million dollars, you know, in certain instances, sometimes tens of millions of dollars. 
they look at a deal and they look at the the um, total opportunity that's there and try to con construct a story and a process that would align to a company saying, yes, this makes sense for us to go all in with you because the counter of that, just, just dipping your toe in the water doesn't give us the results that we would need, does not provide the impact that we would want. And it's better to go all in. But that right there in and of itself is probably one of the largest areas of leakage that you can get. So let me pause there, see if you wanna dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So just, I mean, I guess just to flesh out, I like to, I like to like talk through some of these examples to help me understand. So, you know, I, uh, so, you know, the example that's coming to mind is what you said at the end. Okay. So these two approaches, the notion of selling an enterprise account of Asana or something, um, where, you know, maybe the org only needs this one thing, or that's what they came in for. And so that's the way it's offered in the sales pitch. That's the way the customer proposes it. That's what the AE, uh, the enterprise AE accepts. That's one way. And you're saying even that tweak alone of like, well, no, let me actually take the time to paint a story about how if you adopt all of it, I know you think you need this one thing, but if you adopt all of it at the same time, it's actually going to solve more of your problems and you're actually going to come out ahead, even though this isn't what you came for us thinking. So even adjusting your org to sell like that or to approach the customer like that is a massive change. Yeah, it's in certain instances, it's as simple as one question that starts an entire different discovery process from one rep to another. So let me give you kind of a specific example. <clears throat> in, a, in a lot of cases, you may have as part of your product suite, something that's very hot, like something that everybody wants to talk about. If you're, um, you know, if, you, if you're doing, um, if you go to uh, exhibits or like if you go to uh, industry events, everybody that comes to your booth, they want to talk about it. It could be AI, it could be, some feature functionality. And for reps, it's so easy to be like caught in that trap. It's like, oh, they love this, et cetera. Yeah. And so they, they go down this path where they're selling this, this, in, this piece of a solution that's very exciting to the client, but there's a whole suite of other things that if you tie those together, then you have a much more robust solution. It gets broader acceptance across the organization. And the impact that you have to the business is much bigger than that one piece. And by the way, this is where leakage could actually come from your product team. So your product team, just in the way that they present their solution and marketing team by messaging, if they sure. present this as a widget versus an entire solution, like imagine if there's you, you go in and every car dealership didn't sell you a car, they sold you all the pieces of the car. That's a hard sale. Like you're, you're selling tires, you're selling transmissions, things like that. But just by changing your messaging, they're going to come in and they're going to buy a Tesla. They're going to buy the whole thing and they may, may buy a support package. So, so a lot of it in that approach is, is it, it goes cross-functional across the entire organization. And so I think that one piece alone really can make people stand up and, and, and see differentiating it. And by the way, that one, one easy metrics you can look is, is your average deal size growing or shrinking? And if you're looking at your deal sizes, what is the product mix that people are buying or, or clients are buying? And can you put a package together where you tie other things to that and make it much more enticing to 
you know, maybe maybe buy something a little bit more. So, so yeah, absolutely. There's um, there's a, a, a number of different ways that this could be fixed, and a number of different ways that this could create, um, uh, you know, lower deal sizes and less, you know, less revenue. And, and you know, it's almost like pre-leakage. Like you're losing the revenue before you even get right. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I like that pre-leakage. Um, yeah. So. So I want to keep going. I want to go to the next step, uh, but I'm going to pause something you said I was going to ask at the end, but I think thinking it might be helpful for listeners if I ask it up front. You mentioned if you look at your average deal size, right? And it and it looks low or whatever. And I was going to ask like kind of an overarching question. It might be, it might be really dependent on the list of seven that you're going to give me, but how, when you, when people are about to listen to you list out these seven areas of revenue leakage, what signs are they looking for in the data to know like this is not optimal because it sounds like hypothetically with you know with this approach you could you could work for a year right and maybe you get four out of the seven areas to stop leakage and you're and you're doing well but the other three remain so what's like the identifier what what are is there like a couple core metrics associated to each one that they're looking at are they using industry benchmarks to identify hey i'm i'm lower than what i should be or is it just kind of projections like this is what we could be in the most ideal world and we're only here like what what's triggering your mind if you were to do this analysis with a company to say yeah there's more room for growth here or i think we've nailed it and we're good and we can move on you know we're good with number one let's move on to number two kind of a thing Great question. So each one of these seven has unique areas that you would you would look into. There, there, it's it's across each seven of them. So for the deal size itself, some things that I would be looking at is compared to. By the way, so let's let me let me just um let's talk about something um to on on number one that's really important is um. White space is how much you have available to your existing accounts. That's the, the terminology that I, I use. Green space is for your new opportunities, your, your defined clients that you want to go after. If you optimized all of your sales into that, we call them new logos, a new logo, what is the total uh, potential of a sale to that organization? So number one is, do you even have that number or not? Because then the rep doesn't even go in with an understanding of what the total opportunity could be. And that's a problem. So they could be leaving money on the table just by not knowing what the total amount is available before they even talk to the, the client. And by the way, just think about that. If you're not optimizing your approach to the highest potential clients of revenue for you, you're losing money right there. So like each one of these has a piece of that. And so other ways that you can look at it is um, by product. Are we selling them a product? Or are we selling them a suite of products? Mm. Um, uh, the, the So there's a, multiple ways to measure each one of these seven. And as we have the discussion, I think they will become apparent. If not, we can, you know, kind of discuss in perfect. those areas what, how you could possibly measure it. Awesome. Okay. That's perfect. I love it. Um, all right. So number one deal, that's the first area of revenue leakage. What would be in your mind the second? So the second one, which I very rarely see companies actually document, measure, and work on is the conversion dollar amount from the booking to the revenue. So if I go out and I sell a million dollar deal, 
and our average time to implement is six months, how much of that million dollars actually turns into billable revenue within a certain time frame? And and very few companies actually do that and and measure it down to like where did it where did the leak like where did the leakage occur in the implementation? Did you find something where you thought they were going to do some work uh, around, or they had a system that you can integrate with, and then you know two or three months into the deal, you found out this isn't going to work. All that revenue is lost. So there's, you know, from what you sell to what you actually get paid for, there's an opportunity to lose a significant amount of money there. Also, there's a timing issue on this. So if you're running your revenue operations really closely. Every deal that you sign, you should have what percentage of that revenue that you signed in a booking comes out and in your revenue. And if you're not measuring what your in your revenue projections were to what your in your revenue actuals were, you're missing an opportunity to find mm -hmm. revenue that was lost from the sale to the actual go live date. And so, you know, things that you should do up front in that area is. When you look at every deal, what percentage of the revenue that you're signing is reoccurring versus one time? So let's just say it's 80, 80 20. You sell a million dollar deal, 20% of that is non-recurring. You get that revenue, it's gone. 80% then is recurring. You wanna make sure you get all of that 80% and continue to get that 80%. Um, so those are some areas right there, right from when you, you um, some measures, right from signing the deal to, to getting implemented where you can lose a significant amount of revenue. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like, The first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like, what's happening in the funnel. It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. Why do you think more companies aren't tracking this? Like it's, I mean, it sounds from what you're saying, like it's really, really rare. Why is it that, um, yeah, that, that this isn't something more companies are paying attention to? So I think it depends on the company. So if you're selling a small transactional deal, let's just say that your average deal size is $5,000. There's 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 not enough revenue loss. The deal size isn't big enough to do that. It's the, what I say is the juice isn't worth the squeeze. They're too small of deals to make it worth your while to look at them. I and mean, by the way, you're probably selling so many of these deals that you'd probably invest more money to try to find if you lost revenue than just continuing to sell deals where there's some erosion, 
you know, there's some erosion before it happens. But I would say for the larger size deals, like when you're talking enterprise sales, anything over a million, where, where I see the disconnect typically would be is between the revenue ops team and the finance team not coordinating that discussion and finding out from the time that the deal sold what is actually converted into revenue. Another, another thing where this could, a symptom of this or a um, something that a revenue leader may wanna look at, and by the way, if I'm a revenue leader and I'm hearing this, this is not something that a lot of people love to do, but um, some compensation plans only pay you for what you sold, not for what you delivered. And by the way, if those numbers are drastically dif different, then you're likely overpaying your reps for what they actually have delivered and creating potentially bad habits in the deal where you're overpaying for a deal that never generates the revenue that you would thought you mm -hmm. would thought that would happen and there's no checks and balances on that. So what I see is that in companies that do this really well like if you look at the you know the the opposite side of of companies that that don't do it well is this is part of their measure. So for me personally I have an I have a bookings goal every year and then I have an in-year revenue goal every year. And by the way if I don't have my in-year revenue goal at like 60 or 70% in the first six months, I'm never gonna hit that goal. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because it takes so long for us to implement. It's not like super long, but like let's say on average, it takes six months to everybody get their ducks in a row. I can never catch up that time once I'm six months into the year to capture the additional revenue I would, would need. So I think one really good way to prevent this from happening is measuring on a regular basis. Um, by the way, we put this in our CRM. So when we have a deal, we have the ACV value in it and we have the in-year revenue deal and we measure it and manage it on a regular basis and have a conversation not only with our finance partners, but also with the board. The board holds me accountable for what we get in in-year revenue. Awesome, just taking notes here to make sure. Um, yeah. Okay, love it. Uh, what would number three be? So number three, I actually just kind of touched on. It's the idea of, now th you may argue that this isn't revenue, but it's how your compensation plan ties bookings to actual revenue. So this could be a leak in commissions where you're paying people for revenue that they never get. And so even though it's on the expense side of it, you're still paying more for a deal that never generates the revenue. And it still impacts your contribution margin in your business as a whole. So- And, and an example of that would be, I sold something you know, for a million, um, but actually what's delivered to them is not a million dollars worth of value. Yeah, so, so you know, imagine, look, just rough numbers. So say you sold a million dollar deal, Say you had a 10% commission on that deal, you get $100,000, you walk away, you're happy, you're going on to the next deal. Well, if that deal only generates $60,000 or $600,000 of that million dollars, you should have actually only be, been paid $60,000, not $100,000, and you're losing $40,000 right out of the gate. Okay. Okay. And what's the way companies can measure this? Or what are the ways that this is maybe slipping by them right now? Well, the the way that you can measure it is they in your revenue, you know, forecasted versus actual. 
And then um, the other way that you would want, um, you wouldn't want to measure, I personally wouldn't want to measure how much commission we over <laughs> we overpaid people on. It's not a great measure to talk about, especially with finance and, and, and boards. What you'd want to do <laughs> is, is track that um, over time, have a baseline number, and then possibly hold back a commission until the revenue is actually accrued. And then you're tying more of the dollars out in commission to the dollars in that you got in revenue. So it's a way to make sure um, that the reps and everybody who put this together actually sign deals that convert to the revenue that you're expecting from them. And it's just a good way to run a, a, a business that you know isn't like the growth at all costs where you're just selling things and not looking back. A lot of making sure that you protect revenue is digging into everything you do and making sure that you didn't miss anything. So, yep. so that's one way that you can do it. It also keeps the person who sells the deal involved in the deal a little bit longer to make sure that they can, you know, smooth over any issues that that come up during the implementation and it kind of ties them a little bit longer into the deal where they're just not kind of selling a deal and running away. Yeah, that's what came to mind. I was going to say was the difference you articulated earlier, which was sold the deal. Okay, got the commission onto the next deal because that's where the money is. That's where my focus is versus no, I've got to see this through to the end. So it seems like it incentivizes some better behavior that way. Correct. Yeah. Um, okay, awesome. So we've got deal. Uh, we've got the conversion dollar amount. Um, and then we've got compensation. What would number four be? So the number four is billing issues related to complexity of the deal structure. So um, not all deals that you sell line up neatly to your billing system. And in some companies, the more complex the deal that you do, the more it almost breaks their billing system. And it's not uncommon for companies that actually have to manually build, bill a complex deal okay. or even have manual efforts to check to make sure that you're billing everything appropriately. Let me give you one example. So, yeah. um, and by the way, this is an area of leakage that is not part of the seven. It, let's just call this a bonus one. Okay. So. <laughs> So right now it's 2023. Over the last two or three years, we've seen a massive amount of inflation. Cost of living has gone way up. Expenses to companies have, have gone up. Like everything that you likely buy costs more right now. Eggs are really expensive. Milk is more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. So some companies out, out there sell deals that have a cost of living increase. So if you have a multi-year deal, and you have, you know that the cost of living is, is going to increase or it normally does increase, you know, roughly 2% per year. The last few years have been very high, 8% or more. And some of this just depends on geography. So anyways, um, you may put into your contractual terms that every year you're gonna take an increase automatically in the deal for cost of living increase. It allows you to, you know, pay additional wages to the people that support that that account, et cetera, et cetera, because all costs go up. Well, one leakage point is that if you don't set up your billing system to automatically increase that the bill, when that cost of living increase occurs, 
then you're losing that entire increase for the length of the term of the contract and subsequent uh, increases above and beyond that. And if you think that this doesn't happen, it totally happens. And so this is one area where if you have consistent year over year, say you do a five-year deal or a 10-year deal, those two to five or 10%, whatever that increase are, they become, it's like the law of compounding interest. That becomes a massive amount of money yeah. that you never capture. And if someone's not watching over that, then then you're you're running into a position where if it's ever disclosed, imagine how difficult that conversation is going back to the client and saying, oh, by the way, our contract said we'd be putting in these increases year over year, and we never did it. So now you owe us this outrageously large amount of money. So making sure that be, you know when you sign that deal, that your billing system aligns to every single component of that deal, and it doesn't require a ton of manual efforts on it, and you have um, checkpoints in when these increases were to occur, those all need to be um, included in how you do things. And that's another area that you can find leakage in. And is that mostly caused, um, that would be an area where, uh, like, is there a metric or a number? Like, is there is this something you all track in the CRM to know, here's the way I'm thinking about it, uh, not working obviously a lot on enterprise accounts is like, is there like a, this was a standard deal, this was super custom, so it's a red flag to look into it and make sure everything's accounted for? Or how are, how are companies digging into this to, to find this? Well, in this specific area, you'd normally find this as a finance uh, function, not okay. a revenue function. Now, okay. we do get involved in it because we want a very tight organization. Uh, we, we need to, and, and you know, we, our deal sizes are pretty substantial. So this is really a partnership between finance and client success and sales to make sure that, that you do these things. But um, I think the way you prevent it from happening is we use a deal desk to bring all of our solutions together amongst the entire team. So we have our technology team. Can we do this? We have our finance team. Can we build this? Are the contribution margins make sense? Does this account for any additional expenses? So we have, you know, when we do a deal, we have entire spreadsheets with P&Ls on them to do it. Um, we also have a review process. So we have technology in there. We have our solutions team. We have our implementation team. We have our client success team. Everybody kind of puts their fingerprints on the deal to make sure that if we actually did this, can we meet all of the things that we said we could do? And can we effectively bill for all the things that we, we, we said we could do? And only take uh, and only present that solution to the client when all those check boxes are done. Now this, it does create a little bit of, um, of slowness in that part of the deal, but the, the, the benefit of it is, is you know that when you're presenting this opportunity to a client, that it's something that the business can support. And in lieu right. of that, it, it, it actually gets ahead of future problems where you get three or four months into um, work with a client only to find out, oh, well, it needs to integrate with this solution over here that we never talked about in the scoping phase. And that's not a part of it. And then bad feelings happen because it slows down the entire process. So this is almost like what I would call like measure twice and cut once. It's yeah. like do all the hard work up front so you don't have issues 
you know, after the, the, the client would sign on. I feel like there's takeaways here too, even for like, we have some agency listeners um, who are doing, you know, way smaller deal sizes than this. There are, you know, there may be like tens of thousands or something like that. But the idea of, of uh, measure twice, cut once, I think is really applicable here to be like, slow down, make sure that you fully accounted for everything. You fully fleshed out everything, all potential changes over the course of a couple of years, you know, or like on a retainer model of what clients are going to want and make sure that you've adjusted for that because things might look really different for you, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now. So, yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon for, for you know, this phrase to be shared either inside a client or inside a company is the client had no idea what they bought. That's, 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 it's common, but if you put discipline in, it, it should be much less common. Uh, and you learn from those. Is you, you do one of those and you lose your shirt on it, you, you likely won't do it again. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, okay, awesome. Uh, moving right along. So what would be number five? So number five is, um, and I think this is, is, is probably more sits in the product side uh, or wherever pricing sits in your business. But um, one of the things I've seen in, in, in companies is where they have a usage-based pricing formula or some type of uh, pricing that's based off of a forecast you would get from your client. What I have historically seen is that the forecast that you get from a client is usually way higher than what they actually do with you. Mm. And your pricing doesn't scale for the low end of that usage scenario and the high end of that usage scenario, and you're stuck with it. So let's just say, for example, um, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to pick a solution. Let's just say that you sell um, API calls. So an API call is uh, a call out from a, a you know a platform to another platform, and you charge for those API calls. And maybe this is the first time this client ever bought API calls, and they're going to come in and say, "We're going to do a million API calls a year." <laughs> okay, great. And guess what? Your pricing is a million API calls. Well, you're losing money almost like out of the gate if they do anything less than a million and they're losing money if they do anything well in advance of a million. So you've got to address your pricing to make sure that as a company that's offering that solution, you're protected if that company does zero dollars or zero API calls all the way up to their highest amount that they could possibly do. And so what I see is a lot of companies don't use a, use a tiered or a graduated scale for how they price out their product to protect them on the low side and maybe even incent and or protect them on the high side if there's a tremendous amount of use. So, you know, one of my first companies, we sold internet service. And back then, you actually paid for how much bandwidth you bought. And so like, it was uh, it was really good time in the internet. That's all gone. It's all like flat pricing right now. <laughs> but, you know, in our early days, we were really young kids and and we um, we learned after our first deal that anything that's usage based, you've got to make sure that you protect yourself on the high and the low on that. And so um, so that's another way you can lose revenue. Now, this may be an ignorant question, but is that, are those cases that you're seeing 
like when I see those things, I assume the product itself is just saying it is counting the usages. So whatever you project, you project, right? And the pricing pages sort of serves as like an estimate of what you'll pay, but what you actually will pay is counted up kind of tallied. Like, you know, the product itself will say, well, you know, you did 800,000 API calls, not a million. Therefore, this is your amount. Are, is is that the scenario you're talking about? Or would this be cases where like the price is manually set by the estimate versus the product actually tallying it up? Yeah, so I think it's a mix of the both. So imagine if you uh, only price that deal at the, the million mark and they just did 800,000. So you're, you're actually getting less money because they're giving you less volumes. And likely you're getting less margin on those because the price that you would offer them for 800,000 API calls is very different than if they did a million. Right. So, okay. right. And the other thing is in a lot of these usage case scenarios, some companies bake in their upfront cost into the usage scenario, expecting the best outcome. Well, that if that never occurs, then you actually lose money in all those upfront investments you made to bring that client live because they never get to the usage pattern that you thought that they would. And it becomes a really upside down deal for you because you haven't priced it correctly given the volumes that they actually did. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't, um, it's not uncommon. The other thing is whenever you're selling something new that a client never has never purchased before, they don't know. I mean, it's an estimate for them. Right, yeah. And so, so I think you'd have to go in with the right intentions, but for just protect yourself in the way that you structure the deal itself. And would this be the same thing? Uh, you know, I'm guessing this is all use case based scenarios. So even seats like, you know, companies are going through rounds of layoffs. So they think that they're going to need this many seats, but then like they actually end up needing, you know, 10 or 20% less. Is it, is it like the same, you know, idea? Um, it's not as much for seats unless, um, let me just think this through for a second. This is a good question. If you, and by the way, I don't think SaaS companies like I, I would do this, but maybe they did. Typically in SaaS, when you buy a seat, you buy it whether it gets used or not. I mean, right. you know, you buy a thousand seats. If you only use two hundred of them, doesn't matter. You pay for a thousand seats. Now, if a company sold used a used seat that you know someone actually was going to use that seat. And they said that they were going to use a thousand and you priced the entire deal at a thousand and they only used 200, then you've lost a ton. Not only have you lost revenue, but you've lost contribution margin because they, the, the deal and what they did didn't line up and you've lost a lot of money that way. Because that if you only do 200 seats, that's going to cost you way more on a per seat basis than it would at a thousand seats. Mm. So I mean, that's roughly how I would see it go. I, I don't think SaaS companies charge that way. They, they may, um, but you know, typically what you want to do is allow for fluctuation that if they do some percentage above or below, it allows for that because no company, you know, starts a year with X number of people and ends the, the year with the exact same amount of people. They either have more, they have less or whatever. And so you've got to have your contractual terms line up in a way that matches what their their likely reality could be.
Right, right. It seems like that also impacts uh, the the third area of compensation because then you're probably also like to your point about API calls. Yeah. You know, you're you just paid. Uh, you know, uh, my brain my brain's failing this afternoon, but you paid compensation for a million dollar deal, but it actually didn't come out to that. So that impacts a couple of the other Correct. points you brought up too. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Uh, number six, I think we're at. Yeah. So we, I called this out already, but I'll reemphasize it is, is lacking data on white space and then your coverage across the, the white space is. So one of the things that, um, look, uh, I, I did some consulting for a while. And the rough thing about consulting was that I never like for the for the little time that I did it, I felt like I wasn't doing the work. So I've always wanted to do the work. And one of the things that I've been working with my head of operations on this year is this. Um, and by the way, if any of their CROs out there want to talk to me about it, I'd love to get some some thoughts on this. But what we did this year, because we're, we're really trying to run a best-in-class team, and I, and I talk very regularly about our team, is what we did this year is we created a nine-box grid. And um, what we did is we said, okay, what are our different sales motions? Okay, so we have, you know, um, renewal motion, just renewing accounts. We have an upsell motion, and then we have a new logo motion. So that would be on the horizontal line. Then what we have is we have segments of accounts that are either existing accounts or new accounts. So we have a large client segment, a mid-sized client segment, and a smaller size client segment, right? Then what we did is we put all of our green space and our white space numbers in those boxes. Oh, awesome. No, we're not done yet. This is where it gets really fun. Okay, then I'm, picture, I'm did, putting it all together in my head. I know, as you it's talk, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, yeah, yeah. I get it. But it's, um, look, it's um, these exercises really, they're visual and they just jump off the screen at you. So imagine you have that. Then you layer over your investment and headcount on top of that. And what it's going to show you is where you're underinvested and where you're overinvested. And when you're going into budgeting season, you may say, wow, we need to move 20% of the dollars that we're spending here into this area because we don't have coverage on all of this green space or white space that we need to. So in a, a very quick visual, you could see this. And all within there are areas of linkage. It, it's you, You're not covering them with the right people. You're not putting the right resources against it. It is... Um, by the way, I didn't come up with this deal as kind of a partnership with my head of RevOps because we were trying to figure out, you know, in, in other podcasts, I've talked about using your budget as a weapon. And it's really a weapon to get the most results that you can out of your business. You know what I mean? Like, it, like imagine the sports, you know, we just did the NFL draft. I'm sure the NFL draft, every one of them was looking at their, their cap. And it's like, what can we afford? How do we use this draft to put the best team on the field and win as many games and go to the Super Bowl. Same idea, but this mm. is a construct to do it. So without the green space and white space, though, you never know. And so you could really lose a lot of opportunity on the revenue side and the sales side and spend a lot more money on headcount if you don't have your budget aligned to the potential, aligned to your sales motions, et cetera and have that optimized. So this, this nine box grid 
was an easy way for us to just say, are we crazy? Are we, we close? <laughs> and so, um, so we're going through that process right now. And it's, it's really allowed us to uncover some really interesting things that make us, you know, make smarter decisions about how we allocate resources. Yeah. I love, I love the analogy um, of the NFL draft. Like it's, it's puts everything into picture when you think about um yeah, like here's all the things that we're doing. This is what this is the bandwidth or the budget that we have this year to try and put together the most effective team, you know, or or um, you know, team in that in that case, but playbook to like drive the most amount of revenue. So it's it's uh super helpful. It also sounds like like the white space grid idea. It like is this a this is super random, but it feels like this could be its own little like product like for RevOps pros if yeah. it doesn't exist already. So it's it's funny you bring that up. I actually talked to one of our tech vendors. They said, "Look, you're really good down here, and you've got nothing up here, but you're absolutely right. I think in in the technology space, someone will come up with this product idea. The difficulty is." There's so many different ways that companies across the board could could formulate how they create their white space and green space that mm. would be hard to create unless you allow them to plug in their their um, how they would calculate white space and green space and then have the the product be smart enough to do it on on its own. It's very hard to consider all the different options because you have people selling seats, you have people selling enterprise license agreements, you have people selling uh, software. I mean, there's just so many different ways that they can construct what the calculations around their green space and white space. I think that's the only reason why some um, someone hasn't figured it out yet, or maybe there's so few people doing it now that there hasn't been a market need. But, you know, in all my organizations, as as revenue ops has become a primary part of our business, we've really taken this approach and it allows us to just be very, very smart about, on, about how we do things. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. Um, okay. Well, we're down to the last one. We're uh, yeah. at the top of the hour. So perfect timing. Yeah. So this is the easiest one. Churn. Okay. I want to talk. Need to have a, <laughs> <laughs> no, not that we have to have a whole big conversation on it, but yeah, losing clients is a huge way to leave revenue. So this one, I'm ex- I'm actually excited to get. It's it's good timing to to dive into because uh, we are doing on our on our written content, uh, we're doing a new content series called Dear Data Box, uh, that stems from our bench our free benchmarks product. So people that you know go to use the benchmarks tool and you know maybe like join this the the b2b SaaS group for stripe they can see that their churn is below the median right like they're performing in the bottom quartile or something then they can submit to us hey i want to learn how to improve this and we'll go like run a survey and try and like learn people doing churn was one that we just did so i'm curious to dive into this a little bit um what are I know it, it feels like I, I got like a wide variety of answers. There's it, there's all kinds of things that impact this. Are there like a handful that in your experience, listeners can like, okay, these three, you know, or these five or whatever it may be, are top areas to look at or top drivers? Or is it completely, like some people were telling me there's like a couple areas to look at and some people were saying completely dependent on the business and the unique situation. Yeah, I would fall in the latter. This, this is almost 100% unique to the business, unless you operate in a business that's like a lot of other businesses. So like, 
in SAS, you know, likely what one of their churn identifiers is, is usage of the product. If people aren't sure. using it, they're likely to churn. Um, but they could have tons of others. Like we lost, um, we lost our primary advocate for us and, you know, you know, consolidation could be another one for those. So I think for most companies, the markers that you would use for churn are going to be very specific to your business. We have what we call health markers uh, that we measure on a regular basis. So I can see which of our clients are what we call red, yellow, green, which ones are green, everything looks good, which ones are yellow, and which ones are red. By the way, in all this work and all this effort that most companies do, it takes one thing to change those colors instantly. So this is not something mm. that any leader can ever feel comfortable about because you're one technical outage away from this being an issue. You're, you're one um, you know, functionality snafu away from everything being changed the game. So like, you know, wrapping your arms around health markers may make you feel good at night, but maybe only one night because tomorrow <laughs> is a whole new day and your churn could look differently. And it, I am shocked still today on the, the litany of reasons that I never would have bet any amount of money would ever come up as why clients churn. And so it's a, it's a very challenging thing for people to measure, but every time churn happens gives you an opportunity to prevent future churn and it needs to be a part of your conversation and your measurements on a regular basis um, we use win-loss analysis okay. um, uh, quite a bit for that we like to do interviews not surveys because uh, I, we think that surveys just kind of lock in answers where the real richness on yeah. what happened is in the interview so we think that those are we think that that's right for us as a business. Now, if you're doing a transactional sale that's very small, it'd be way too expensive to do interviews. So so I think in this case, I would agree with the the team that says that it's very by business de dependent. Yeah, yeah. Those are all um, really good insights. I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're we're getting close to that, to the top of the hour. Um, I guess a last question to wrap is, what expectations would you set? So, you know, let's say a, a company hasn't, is just hearing this list of seven for the first time, they've taken notes furiously, and they're going to start to try and address some of these areas and work through them. Are some of the, like, it sounds like the way you're describing them is some of them can be quite small changes. Like this could be things you discover and maybe implement changes for in as quickly as inside of one quarter that yields really big effects. Some of it maybe takes longer. Is this, are you kind of working through these seven annually? Do you do it once and then just like monitor, you know, maybe certain KPIs associated with each of them and, and only address them then if they dip? Like, how are you thinking about um, the length of time it takes to go through these seven? And then is it just maintaining once they're good or are you revisiting them, you know, quarterly, annually? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I don't know that people will love this answer, but it's the truth is that we operate on a regular cadence okay you know so like for example i have a weekly cadence i have a monthly cadence i have a quarterly cadence i have a half year cadence i have an annual cadence lots of cadences these pieces fall naturally into those sequence of cadences that i work on 
And so like, for example, compensation is an annual cadence. So, you know, about halfway into the year, we're talking about compensation because I have a role in my team. The number one thing that I do, and I've started ever since I came to Prometric and, and every organization that I controlled the compensation plan, there's no reps that don't have their comp plan before the beginning of the year. I don't know how you can ask a salesperson to go out and do something in a year if you don't give them a heads up on what their quota is going to be, how they're going to get paid on it, et cetera. I know a ton of companies do that. But for me, you know, we hold our teams accountable a lot. And and I want to be, I want to hold myself accountable to say, you will have your comp plan, you will have your quotas. You may not love them or you may, you may love them, but you're going to have them in advance of your next year. So some of these fall into my annual cadences. Some of these fall into a monthly cadence. Um, I don't think there's anything on here. Um, and some of these are a little ad hoc. Like, for example, um, the deal itself, that, that comes out in our deal desk when we're looking at the deal. So, you know, we have a weekly deal desk, but not every deal desk has structural issues that could create leakage. So... Um, I know that's kind of a broad answer, but like, you know, what I would do is create the list first, then look at your cadence and slot in where they would go. Mm. Um, and maybe only pick one at, at, at first and see what the impact of it could be. Like you could do as much or as little of this as you want to. Um, it's, it's really up to you. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. There's probably like five or six other things. We've only got an hour. <laughs> I could have told you like a bunch of other things that you can do as well, but. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this. It's incredible. Um, where do you want people to kind of follow along with you? Maybe if they want to, I know you, you're pretty active on LinkedIn, right? They can follow you to get more tips like this. Yeah. You know, I was very active for a while. And um, one of the tough things, just it's hard for me to be active on LinkedIn because I have a full-time job. Right. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I was sharing content uh, every day for a while. And now we're really working on the business hard. So I haven't, but like the best way for people to follow me is, uh, is on LinkedIn. Um, and it, it's just LinkedIn. It's Sean H Burke. You can find me, uh, find, find me that way. Okay. Awesome. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, thank you again for coming on and we'll see everyone in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.